Well, good morning and thank you. It's a, a pleasure to be with you this morning and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, since this service has been going, uh, it's been one of the highlights of my year and it's very, very nice to be back. Let's pray together. Creator God, you know us and you love us. By your spirit, inspire our speaking and listening so that we, together with all your saints around the world, may be worshipful witnesses of your Son, Christ the King, the Lamb who was slain. Amen. I wonder when you last found yourself in a large crowd, a throng of people participating in the same event, uh, perhaps uh, a sports match or a concert, music concert, uh, or even Christmas shopping. I wonder how you felt. Is it a great experience, one of fun? Do you feel uncomfortable in a crowd? Or do you get the sense of collective euphoria? Today, as we gather from the four corners of west of Cambridge, we perhaps have a tiny foretaste of the amazing vision of Revelation, the words that have just been read to us, of a crowd, a vast multitude that no one could count, caught up in the worship of God. I think this breathtaking picture is not just something we anticipate for eternity, but it is one in which we can begin to live now as witnesses to God's kingdom. And today we're going to envision how this vision may help our worship together as God's people. But I'd first of all like to take a look at the passage we've just read and its context of the book of Revelation. The writer of Revelation, John of Patmos, was deeply concerned about the society in which he lived. In the amazing imagery that he, he uses, he was a stern critic of the Roman Empire its pagan worship, its hedonism, and its political and economic structures. He wanted to ensure that Christians lived distinctive lives and understood the power struggles that were going on around them. And the visions that he received whilst in the spirit are powerful, imaginative portrayals of one who is deeply suspicious of societal status quo, and who considers political authority to be suspect, immoral, and even dangerous to God's intentions. Perhaps the uh, scrutiny of the global banking system, as one example in the last few years, may have engendered a little more sympathy with his position. John, however, is uncompromising in his expectations of Christians. And it, as he writes Revelation, he starts out talking to the seven churches of Asia. He wants to raise their consciousness and look at the ways that they've developed different approaches to the societies that they've li they're living in. 
and he exhorts the Christians of those churches to endure in the knowledge that God is victorious despite evidence to the contrary. And in this chapter 7, we have worshippers coming together, the suffering witnesses of Christ. They include Jews and a whole host of Gentiles from across the globe. They, says the elder in the passage, are assured of God's ultimate guidance and tender care. This is an extraordinary vision in the first century. The small, scattered, harassed Christian groups emerging in the Roman Empire are imagined as a great multitude of global diversity with a single common cause, the unceasing worship of God. And yet, perhaps John had glimpsed something of that reality, if not the scope, in his experience beyond his visions. Patmos, where he was taking exile, we are told, when he wrote this book, is an island close to the great port of Ephesus, the third largest city of the Roman Empire. It had a church since the early days of Christianity, which, as Paul's letter to the Ephesians suggests, drew people from many nations, tribes, and languages. So the imperial forces which John critiques so severely elsewhere in the book of Revelation are responsible for drawing together in the great cities of that empire those who wish to take advantage of what the Roman Empire offered and also those who were taken advantage of by the structure of the empire. And I'll suggest later on that there may be parallels in our situation today in the UK and across the globe with those kind of forces. But let's look for a minute at the purpose of this amazing gathering. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Today, as we've heard, some people remember Christ the King. Christ the King, the Lamb who was slain in this chapter, pointing the way to the throne of God. And it's a reminder that we worship a God who knows what it is to suffer and to be victorious in suffering. It's an extravagant image, like so many in the book of Revelation. It starts with members of the tribe of Israel, then we have an enormous throng of people waving palm branches. The palms are a sign of victory, resonating with the palms waved as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They indicate that while victory is assured, the ordeal is not over. Angels, elders and creatures join the robed crowd in worship of God. 
The language is vivid and dichotomous. Robes are made white by being washed in the blood red, uh, the, the, the blood, the, the red blood, sorry, of the lamb. The lamb who is also shepherd. Yet in a book that has lent the name of its genre, Apocalypse, to descriptions of catastrophe and chaos, like the typhoon that ripped through the Philippines two weeks ago, or the ongoing fighting and destruction in Syria, this chapter sings of the hope that is the ultimate purpose of John's visions. All these countless people are lifting their voices in one song of praise to God Almighty, adoring the one who created and redeemed them. It's a song that emerges from suffering. The suffering of Jesus and the suffering of Christians. Some say that the people in chapter 17 are the persecuted saints of the church. And this may well be. Yet the reference to hunger, to thirst, to lack of shelter, suggests that these sufferings include more common difficulties. The harassments and the conflicting interests felt by those who've remained faithful to God in daily life the poverty of those at the bottom of the economic pile. Whatever it is, it is not warm, fuzzy, comfortable praise. This worship may indeed lift the spirits, buoy up those who sing, inspire them to ever greater adoration of God, but it is a costly worship born of difficulties and suffering. And so who are these people? A vast multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe and people and language. Another breathtaking vision. And it's a vision very close to my heart. As you heard from Mike, the Henry Martin Centre is a centre for the study of mission and world Christianity. And it's a centre which is there as a resource for the churches of Cambridgeshire. So if you'd like to come and visit, please do. Amongst its, its books and papers, it has descriptions of churches in many nations among many peoples. It charts the growth of the church in different parts of the world. But it also charts the difficulties of us joining together in worship. Christian worship together has often proved very challenging. I visited the Democratic Republic of Congo early this year, where Peter and I had lived for a number of years. I was there on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the day when the Congolese church show off the rich ethnic diversity. They sing songs and they preach in different languages. And uh, that day, I think they had about five or six choirs all coming up to sing their Pentecost song. But the piece de resistance was the mother's union, 
They had the best song and everybody loved it. Their song told the story of that first day of Pentecost. And the chorus was sung in a different language by one woman. So you've got this big choir, and then at the chorus, somebody stands forward and sings three lines in, in a language. We had, we had English and French, we had Swahili, we had Lingala, we had Kihema, we had Ngiti, we had Lugbara, we had Kakwa, and that, after that, I gave up counting. It kept coming forward, and you could tell that for some of the women, they were singing in their first language. For some of the women, they just learnt the words in another language so that they could join in and sing this one. Um, It was marvellous, and as they went on singing more languages, the congregation showed their appreciation by cheering and clapping. It was a tremendous celebration of diversity. And yet, it wasn't just a celebration of what the churches in Congo had achieved. It was a prayer and a vision for how they might overcome their difficulties. After the church service, there was a long meeting, another attempt at reconciling people in that congregation and indeed people who'd absented themselves from that congregation. After 15 years of conflict, the divisions over land, over property, over historic differences had entered the church. People who had been determined not to be worn down. People who had offered refuge in the early years of the war to people from different ethnic backgrounds from themselves, who'd taken great personal risks were finding that those fissures of society were breaking down along ethnic and linguistic divides within their own congregations. A remarkable vision sung by the Mothers' Union, but one brought out of real pain and heartache, real difficulty, real despair in some times about how to reconcile each other. Some of the women who were singing were actively involved in the very risky business of reconciliation between ethnic groups who'd grown to distrust each other, working beyond any sense of their own security in areas where there are pockets of regional violence. And the university that I was visiting and teaching in the university to whom part of our collection will go today uh, towards books for their library, is committed to rebuilding the country, of educating young men and women to serve and be good citizens and to bring Christian hope of reconciliation in a country that has seen war and bad governance for a very long time. And so when we sing, when we raise our voices, we sing with the people of Congo, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are part of that great worshipping community. And they will have met a little bit earlier than our service, maybe at half past eight, um, our time. 
they will have been praying for us in Bunia um, as one of the contributors to our slide uh, promised. So they are grateful for our prayers in their suffering and in their work of reconciliation, but they also pray for us. However, the divisions among peoples are not peculiar to the Congo. In the United Kingdom, we have our own divisions between our four nations, divisions of class, of wealth, divisions between our denominations. We also see self-serving figures uh, in the media and divisions in our political system. One of the divisions we see is perhaps among those of every nation, tribe, people and language who presently live on this island. In the 21st century, Mass migration, encouraged by ever-rapid transport, communication and global trade, those forces that we abbreviate in the word globalisation, bring many people into geographical proximity on a scale that even ancient Ephesus did not see. So for us as Christians, the worship described in Revelation 7 7, need not simply be an eschatological vision, something for a heavenly future. Worship with people from many nations is possible today. And when some of the fissures of our society form down racial and linguistic lines, when the problems of our small island are often blamed on the most recent arrivals, common worship of God can be a powerful witness to the lamb who was slain. It has been my privilege to live and worship in Camborne until earlier this year. Those who have been part of the Christian communities there Know that we are far from perfection, nor is it necessarily a model for other communities, but it is one that offers hope. We have in Camborne three congregations worshipping in the same building and getting on together and visiting each other's services and joining in social events, participating in house groups together. We have the Indian Orthodox Church, whose services link us to the very early Syriac Church. The Indian Orthodox Church provides worship in a particular tradition, a particular language, the language of Malayamam. They offer understanding and support to those who come from Kerala, by fellow Kerelans who completely understand what it's like to make the transition from one culture to another. Their church and many others like it in this country offer people a refuge and a comfort in a strange land. But much more than that, 
they offer to the entire Christian community a sense of the longevity of Christian worship. Their long liturgical services, filled with sweet-smelling incense, remind me that people have been worshipping God sincerely and faithfully for generations in many, many different ways. And I would recommend, if I may extend the invitation, that you go along one Saturday, ask John or Suku what times their services are, and that you participate in their worship in a language that most of you here will not understand, but which resonates with the very earliest words that the people of the New Testament spoke. And you will hear the Kyrie eleison and the Amen and the Alleluia, words that we all share. The other two congregations that worship in Camborne are the Roman Catholic and the Protestant. And we are fortunate that the Protestant congregation is supported by the Anglicans, Baptist, Methodist, URC. And we have many people from other Protestant traditions as well. Like Camborne, and I may say increasingly like Cambridgeshire, these congregations are multinational. A good percentage of the members are originally from outside the UK. And I would like to say to those members, thank you. To those who graciously adapt to a largely white British way of doing things, who participate in services in a form or a language that is different to their own, thank you. Those who enrich the fellowship and provide insights into God's work in the world, please keep sharing that with us all, because we need it. We need our vision of God's work to be expanded beyond what we have experienced. And I'd like to say to those of us who are white British, there are many parts of our own traditions that are dear to us and that speak of God's provision in this land for centuries. But let us also be prepared to go beyond our comfort zones. As we've seen from the reading, true worship of God is rarely completely comfortable. Let us embrace those who come from different places let us get to know them and learn from them how we may worship God in new ways. And sometimes not even in English. And let us too remember those who worship at some geographical distance from us, entering into the suffering and the joy of our brothers and sisters in Congo, in Philippines, in South Africa, in Holland, and across the globe. This service is a foretaste of that amazing vision in Revelation, but it is also our reality, 
our commitment to share our life in Christ with each other and beyond these walls. Let our many voices rise in one song as a witness to our communities of the uniting love of Christ. Let us live the vision of the vast multitude from every nation, tribe and people and language worshipping God. And let us, as part of that commitment, rise and say these words on the screen from Revelation. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Please sit down.